morning. Welcome, and welcome to those of you online as well. Everyone I know is asking really important questions all the time, and particularly at moments in time. For example, is football coming home? To which the answer is probably not, in my opinion, unless you're Danish. Hey, Hannah. In which case, there's a good chance, I think. Maybe a question you're asking is, did I lock the front door when I left this morning? And some of you are thinking, oh, thanks, Rich. I'm now thinking about whether I locked the front door. The question, actually, that most people are asking on and off throughout their lives is a version of this. What is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of life? I went onto Google just to test my theory that the algorithms they use would give us the right answer. You probably can't see it so well in the building. If you're online, you'll be able to see this. So I typed in, what is the P-U? And the first thing that comes up is, what is the purpose of life? Yes, I was right. That is the question Google tells us people are searching for all the time. Interestingly, the next one is, what is the public sector? Interesting. Uh, and then we get to, what is the purpose of the CPU? I have no idea what the CPU is. What is the purge? That sounds quite scary. The one that I thought was funny was the next one. What is the purpose of a risk assessment? To which Owen would say, exactly, what is the purpose of a risk assessment? And to which Mark would say, oh, there's many purposes. Um, welcome to staff meetings. Um, to answer the question, what is the purpose of life? Come with me to ancient Syria. This is a photo of the temple at Ain Dara, what's left of it in Syria. Uh, there's even less left of it, actually, because it was bombed more recently in the recent Syrian conflicts. But we know from archaeologists that this temple was in use between 1300 and 740 BC. It was designed very similar to the Temple of Solomon that we read about in the Old Testament in terms of the layout. And it was dedicated, it was devoted to Ishtar, who was a god of fertility. Notice for now the huge footprints in the floor. And if you've got any idea what they might be, keep churning away. If not, keep listening. Now, here's a photo, sorry, not a photo, a diagram of the Temple of Solomon. That would be impressive if we had a photo of it. Um, this was in use between 957 and 587 BC. We know that from the scriptures. So it overlapped. At the, there was a big point of time where it overlapped with temples like Ain Dara. The thing to notice for now is that we know there were no big footprints in the floor of this temple, which was unusual. Now, logically, all of this reminds me of an almost certainly apocryphal story that involves JFK and NASA. In 1962, on a visit to the NASA Space Center, JFK, as the story goes, notices a man mopping the corridors. And he stops his tour, interrupts it, walks over to the man and says, hey, I'm Jack Kennedy. What are you doing? To which, apparently, the cleaner replies, Mr. President, I'm helping put a man on the moon. True or not, I love that story because it gets to the heart of it. He knew that he was part of something bigger than just him. 
And that story reminds me of what Paul says to the church in some of his letters that we read about in the New Testament. So Romans 12, verses 4 to 6. For just as each one of us, sorry, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you, we are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. In other words, when it comes to God and the mission of God, the kingdom of God, the church, each and every single one of us is on team. Each and every single one of us is needed and has a role to play. If you are packing bags for clients in our food bank, you are helping the mission of God. If you're running the sound desk this morning, you are helping the mission of God. If you're volunteering in the office on the admin front, you are helping the mission of God. If you're preparing kids' work stuff for a Sunday for our little ones, you're helping the mission of God. That is what you're doing. Each and every one of us is tasked, called to that. We're talking this morning about vocation, a word that often we only think of being around certain roles, like the vocation to the ordained priesthood uh, in the Church of England, which is a funny old thing, hey Jess, Um, or a vocation to teaching and medicine, things like that. But in the biblical landscape, in this book, vocation calling is something that each and every human being has because it's part of how we've been made by God. So what is our calling? What is our purpose? I would suggest that the culture we live in, the society we're in, answers the question in a very different way to the way the scriptures do. The culture we live in says the purpose in life is is to do what makes you happy. It's to follow your dreams. It's to improve your life. It's to earn money and retire early, or a version of that. It actually invites us into what I call the accumulation story, that you measure your progress by the more that you have, the more money, the bigger car, the nicer house, the more impressive job, dot, dot, dot. That story actually is impossible to really live out. It's actually an extraction story because the reality is for you and I to have more and to get to the point where we have more than we need, that means people have less than they need because there are finite resources. The more that you and I extract from the world for our own betterment, to bless ourselves, where we place ourselves at the center of our story and say, this is about me, that is at the expense of somebody else. We're inoculated from that a lot of the time in our world, but that is the truth. The Christian story is radically different. As we'll see, each of us is given a three-part vocation, I think. The story begins not at the beginning of the New Testament, but actually at the very beginning of the Scriptures in Genesis. So let's head there. We're not 100% sure when and where Genesis was written, but almost certainly it was written in the ancient Near East times, and it was written as a polemic, as a counter-narrative to the prevailing narratives that existed at the time that shaped people's understanding of what it is to be human and what was true or not about the gods or a god. 
So we're back to temples and footprints. Genesis wasn't the only creation story in the ancient world. There were dozens and dozens of competing creation stories, what we call true myth when we think about uh, kinds of literature you find in the scriptures, a story that is true, that articulates profound truth. One of the most popular alternatives to Genesis was the Enuma Elish. Some of you will have heard of this before. It was written from Babylon, which at the time was like the cultural epicenter of the known world. If we look back in in antiquity, long before uh, the Greco-Roman world, Babylon was this epicenter of culture and politics and thinking. And so this story emerges from the Babylonian empire to try to make sense of what it is to be human, to try to explain the world to people. And in this story, notice how different this is to Genesis. The gods are tired of work. And so they start to complain to Marduk, who is the king of the gods. And he comes up with an ingenious plan to outsource the God's workload to humanity. Here's a line from the Enuma Elish. I will establish a savage. Man shall be called his name. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. Now, most of the other creation myths at the time had a similar set of ideas. The gods are tired and worn out. They don't want to have to do the work anymore. Work's a burden, it's beneath them. So they create humanity as cheap slave labor. And to be human is to be enslaved to the gods and to offer sacrifices, to sacrifice yourself for that. Now you'll hear some of the language I've just used, and you can probably hear some overtones, even today in our cultural world, right? My wife, some of you will know, Kath, works for IJM, the biggest anti-trafficking, anti-human slavery organization in the world, because there are more people in bonded labor today than ever. We still have a narrative, don't we, in our culture's accumulation story of, actually, you do well if you can afford to employ people to do things for you. If you can somehow get beyond needing to work, you've won. You've won the game. You get to retire early and play golf for the rest of your life. I mean, it sounds awful. No offense if you like golf. It's not about golf. It's about not having anything else to do. And so here we have this Genesis account, which sits in complete opposition to these prevailing narratives. It, it says, no, no, that's not what the gods are like. Actually, there's only one God. He's not called Marduk. He's called Yahweh. And that's not what it is to be human. That's not what God was doing when he created the world and placed us in it. We have a better story that makes sense of the world and makes sense of human experience, that explains the origins of it, the reason why it's so dysfunctional, and what God's going to do about it. Genesis declares that there's only one God, and that this one true creator God is loving and kind. He's benevolent. He's not like Marduk and his divine friends who demand sacrifice from you. This God, we're told, doesn't hate work. In fact, he really enjoys it. Work isn't something to escape. Work is something to uh, embrace. It's part of what it is to be made in the image of God, it turns out. Instead of creating humanity to, humanity to offload all his work, Yahweh says, actually, let's work together. I've created a world for you. I've placed you in it so that we can be together. You can know my presence 
and my purpose for creation. Not only that, but you get to co-work with me. You get to co-labor with me. You get to co-create with me. Together, we are going to fill the world with my glory and see human flourishing. That's what I've made you for, says Genesis. And the language that's used is the language of the image of God. Back to Genesis 1 that Amy read. Let us make human beings in our image. Who's us? Well, you can look back now, can't you, through the lens of Scripture. Not that they would have understood it in those days as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but that is a valid way of reading it now. So the first part of our three-part vocation is to bear the image of God. Every human being has this vocation. Because every human being is made in the image of God, which is why it matters that we as the people of God go and love and serve other people and seek justice for them and look them in the eye and seek to redignify them because they matter. Because they're made in the image of God and he knows them and he knows them by name. And so sometimes the work of the church is long, slow and hard, but it matters. The word here for image is actually the word in Hebrew for idol. It's the word salem. So make us an idol. Now, if you've ever been in temples that still exist, perhaps been to a Buddhist temple on travels or anything like that, you'll know that in, in temple language, an idol is a visible representation that's created of an invisible being. The idea being that you can look at this visible representation, this idol, and it tells you what the god of the temple is like. So this temple of Ishtar, for example, in Ayn Dara, there would have been in there an idol of this god. You want to know what Ishtar's like? You look at this idol. And it was emblematic that this god is is dwelling in this temple. There's evidence right there. Every temple in the ancient Near East for every god had an idol in it. And so the worshipper would come in and bow down at the idol as a way of of sensing a connection to the god of the temple. So what about the footprints? The footprints in the temple at Aindara were there so that the worshipper would walk in and see these footprints and be told by the architecture that the God they've come to worship is in the building. They've entered in. They've, this temple's been dedicated to them and they've made their dwelling there. Look, there's footprints, these enormous footprints because these gods are big and I follow these footprints and eventually there's the idol. There's this guarantee that the God was real and there. But there are no footprints in the temple of Solomon. And there's no footprints in the temple of Solomon because there's no idol in the temple of Solomon. When you get to the center, you get to the Holy of Holies, the place where the Spirit of God was, the presence of God was. And that's because the temple of Solomon is this physical attempt to build a temple that actually tells us what the true temple of the heavens and the earth is like. It's actually a, a physical rendering of the creation temple, the cosmos, the cosmos temple that God created. All the heavens and the earth is one temple. And you and I are the idol in the temple. God placed us in the garden, in the holy of holies, of the original garden temple, so that people could see what he's like through you and through me. He doesn't need a statue of him. He's got us. We bear his image in the temple. It's extraordinary. 
This just blows my mind. I love this stuff. People are meant to look at you and me and see what God is like. All our churches, all our temples, all our best efforts to build anything, they're just attempts to reflect something of the ultimate true heaven-earth reality that God is putting back together in and through Jesus Christ. And Genesis says, you and I, every human, is made in the image of God and tasked with bearing his image in and for creation. So notice Genesis 26 goes, uh, verse 26 goes on. They will reign. These image bearers will reign. The word here in the Hebrew is radar, and it's actually king and queen language. It's royalty. They will reign in and over creation. Again, not an accumulation extraction approach to creation, which is actually a lot of what happens, right? We have a climate emergency because of that. This wasn't about extraction and accumulation. This was about cultivation, and nurturing, for flourishing, for everybody to have enough. One Hebrew scholar translates this verse brilliantly, I think, as to actively partner with God to take the world somewhere. I love that. To actively partner with God, to take the world somewhere. We were created to rule on behalf of God so that the whole world would be as he intended. So John Mark Comer, who writes about this stuff, puts it like this. He says, we're image bearers created to rule, to partner with God in pushing and pulling the creation project forward, to work it, to draw out the the earth's potential and unleash it for human flourishing, to cooperate with God in building a civilization where his people can thrive in his presence. And in this cosmic agenda, each of us has a vocation, a calling from God, a way that God wired us, somebody to be and something to do, because the two, he says, merge Imperfect symmetry. This second part of our vocation to, to work with God uh, uh, was obviously interrupted by sin and death, which we read about in Genesis 3 onwards. And in and through Jesus Christ, God has both restored to us the, his image in us. It's, it's given back to us, this birthright, this inheritance, this true identity through the one who was the true Adam, the true idol, the true image bearer uh, in the new heavens, new earth. Notice where Jesus is first shown to his disciples, who Mary sees him where? In a, in a garden. It's another garden. It's another holy of holies. Here, suddenly, yes, you, go, tell them you've seen me. And then through the church, God has recommissioned humanity to once again work with him to fill the earth with his glory. Now it's not about creation and nurture. Now it's about recreation and restoration and nurture. But to the same end, that the world would be as God intended all along. And so for us, as followers of Jesus, the second part of our vocation is to work with him to restore the image of God and all creation That means we've got to confront idolatry where we find it, challenge injustice to reshape the systems of our world in order to re-image people, to serve people, to call them into life, to extend grace, to declare to them the goodness of God, the forgiveness of God. So the Apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Notice the temple language. 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You, he says, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Notice the royal language again. Everyone's an ordained member of the kingdom of God. A holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Jesus walks past the temple, doesn't he? And he says, tear it down in three days. I can rebuild it. Because for a moment, he was the temple. He was the point where heaven and earth interlock and overlap on earth. And now he says to us, you, you are my body. You are the temple. It's in you that my presence is dwelling on the earth. And together you are being built into this royal, holy priesthood temple community. And at Pentecost, the Holy of Holies, the new Holy of Holies, our hearts, is filled again with God's presence. That's what's happening there. And so it wants out because it's in us. That's how it works. You want to know what God's like? Look at his people. You want to meet God? Go to his church. That's how it works. It's extraordinary. So those are our two shared vocations. Every human shares the first. Every follower of Jesus shares the second. And then the third is the expression of that that you and I individually give in our lives the particular specific outworking of those two callings each one of us called to partner with God in a unique precious profound way and because we live in a culture that seems to celebrate the so-called extraordinary and we have a social media world that some of us are trapped in that's super good at forcing unhelpful comparison we can often think of ourselves as basically bit part players a bit insignificant but that is not what Paul would say that is not what the Lord would say that's not what we say every single one of us is called to do what only we can do only you can do what you've been called to do no one else can do it Only you have the unique set of giftings and passions and possibilities and stories that allow you to give your expression to that shared vocation. And part of discipleship is learning together in community, what what does it look like for me to do it? Despite my brokenness, despite my pain, despite all the stuff that's happened. And that's the job often of the church and it's hard and it takes a long time. I was chatting to someone the other day who's a curate in another church, training to be a vicar. uh, And they're looking to see where they go now. Their curacy's finishing. And and he said to me, I I don't know how to, how do I discern where I'm meant to go? God's not speaking. God's, I'm asking God to speak to me about my calling, but he's not saying anything. And I said to him, how long have you been thinking about this? And he said, well, about a year. But God's not given me a picture or a sign or a clear kind of lead. And I was thinking, what, what if actually... You know what you're called to do. You've been called to work in the church, to equip the church, build up the saints for the work of service in the kingdom. Maybe you just need to find a church you think you could go and love. Find a place you could go and call home and get rooted and just get on with the job. In the absence of a specific assignment, just do what's before you with who you are and what you're about. Because we know our calling. We know our vocations. If we start with one and two, three becomes a whole lot easier to work out. If we start with three, we can go round and round the houses forever. So how are you called to bear the image of God, to restore the image of God in the world? The reality is that each and every one of us, we have to work it out by thinking through a number of things. And I'll race through them, but we'll put these out in the notes that go out tomorrow for you guys to look at on your own or in your life groups. 
I would suggest that our personal version of all of this is going to be informed and shaped by a number of things, including our stories, our family of origin stories, the story of your life to date, the highs and the lows. You know, some of the people who are most empathetic that I've come across, pastorally or with those in need, are the ones who've got really quite messy stories themselves. Because God uses all these things for his good. It's amazing. And sometimes we've been privileged to grow up in really functional homes. But that allows us to have other opportunities and do other things for other people. Every single one of us has a family of origin story that God will use profoundly. We all have our own journeys of faith, unique. Some of us grew up in Christian homes, some of us didn't. When was the first time God spoke to you? I remember the first thing God said to me was literally four minutes after I'd become a Christian, like literally. And he, someone came over and said, I think God is saying that he's going to raise you up to lead in the church. <laughs> to which I said, no, he's not. Uh, I obviously lost that one. Thank you, Lord. Um, God spoke. What's God spoken to you? What's he called you to? What's he put in your heart? And sometimes it's messy and hard and frustrating and no one understands you. What about your personality type? I'm actually an introvert, which I know is really hard to believe. Jess is an extrovert, which is not hard to believe. So God works with your personality types. You know, we're different and thank goodness for that. So he's not going to call you to do something that's just going to kill you. What about your spiritual gifting? Each and every one of us, gifted by the Spirit, every one of us, uniquely. Why? Because God's in it with us. Here's my Spirit in you, and here's some gifts to help you do what I've called you to do. They marry up with our passions. So you, working out what they are and how you can use them is part of the discipleship journey where we help each other on. And then what about the opportunities you've got? Past, present, future. All of those come together in different ways, and God works in and through the reality of our lives, the limitations and, and, and says, do what you can with what you've got. So here's a diagram that someone sent me to help us think this through. It's a bit small if you're in the building, but we'll send it out. But essentially, it's just this way of looking at it, thinking, what do I love? What am I good at? Then sometimes, what do I get paid to do? And what is the need of the world around us? And, and where they overlap in different ways, you get different ideas of how you can go about giving expression to what you're called to do. And so in the absence of God making something super clear to us, I think there's real permission to go with our instincts, to go with those prophetic words, to, to love people. What do you like doing? What are you good at? Where's their need? And go do it. And, and all the Lord asks for is that we give him our best shot. <laughs> there's not like a minimum standard to attain before we get a badge, before we're like on team. It's not how it works, thank goodness. And another clarifying question, and I'll finish with this, is simply to say, okay, having thought some of those things through, can I hand on heart say that this is a healthy expression of that restoration story? Or if I'm honest, is it a kind of super spiritual version of the accumulation extraction story? The stories that we will tell in our later years will be stories about the kingdom of God, the vocation stories. I was listening to someone the other night tell their story about how they ended up doing missionary work in Thailand and Singapore. God just spoke to them. They used what they had. They said, okay, great. They didn't know what they were doing. They were a bit terrified. But they're the stories they're telling around the fire pit. They're not telling stories about the new car they bought. 
and the extension they made on their house back in the 90s, that they're not the stories we're going to tell. And those aren't the things that are going to last into eternity. But looking people in the eye, giving them a bag of food because they're hungry, that is the work of the kingdom. Or whatever else that might look like. Sometimes it's one person. I was chatting to someone in the, in the courtyard who's uh, a TA working for, um, sorry, we're talking about their friend who's a TA working with a child with special needs. Like That's what they do. One, one kid gets this one person, done it for five years. That's amazing. That is it. The footprints that God sees in his temple are ours. And they show the world that God is in the temple and what he's like. Should we stand? Let's pray. We're going to sing a final song in a moment. I'm aware we've gone slightly over because preaching, I don't know, I was going to say prerogative, but it's not, is it? So, sorry. But Alex will lead us in a moment. But let's be still.